In its 1922 decision in Pierce v. Society of Sisters, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down an Oregon law banning attendance at private schools. The child is not the mere creature of the state, the court famously explained, but the decision went on to emphasize that the state does have the power to compel attendance at some school and to subject private schools to reasonable regulation. So just what is a reasonable regulation of private schools? What happens when the authority of the state comes into conflict with parents' preferences? And could the answer to those questions depend on what happens next to a group of Orthodox Jewish schools in New York? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next. My guests today are Jason Bedrick and Jay Green. Jason is director of policy at EdChoice and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Jay is a distinguished professor and chair of the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas. Together with Matthew Lee, they are the co-editors of the new book, Religious Liberty and Education, a case study of yeshivas v. New York, just out from Roman Littlefield. Their book will be the focus of our conversation today. And Jason Jay, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on. So congratulations on the book and on lining up such a distinguished roster of contributors, including our own managing editor, Ira Stoll. The book focuses on recent efforts by the state of New York to ensure that children attending Orthodox yeshivas in and around New York City are receiving an education that's substantially equivalent to what's available in public schools. What drew you to this episode? Why does this seemingly obscure spat merit sustained attention? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, it, it does seem like a relatively parochial case, although it's worth noting that in New York, uh, there are more than 150,000 students uh, in the uh, Jewish day schools or yeshivas. Uh, so that would put them, if they were like a school district, they would be in the top 20 um, school districts nationally. So there are actually a lot of students uh, in these schools. It's also worth noting that the vast majority of them are actually learning secular subjects, but there are a, uh, a small but sizable number of them um, that have, there have been complaints that they may not be teaching uh, secular subjects, and they may be spending the entire day, uh, or almost the entire day, on Jewish studies with, in, in some cases, an hour and a half or less of uh, secular studies, usually focused on math and English language arts. Um, but this is not just a parochial issue. Um, just as the, the case that you mentioned at the top of the podcast um, was not just about Catholics. Uh, you know, Pierce v. Society of Sisters had very broad implications and was one of the landmark decisions in a, in a series of uh, Supreme Court decisions uh, concerning uh, education and religious liberty. Uh, another one that was of great import was uh, in 1972, Wisconsin v. Yoder, uh, which concerned an even smaller religious minority, the Amish. Uh, they were seeking an exemption from compulsory education laws in their state beyond the eighth grade. Uh, after that, they wanted primarily their students to be at home, working on the farm, uh, doing Bible study in small groups, but not uh, at the public schools receiving a, um, you know, an, edu an education as you would have it in the public school system. Uh, in a six to one decision, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that actually the compulsory education law infringed on the Amish people's constitutionally protected religious liberty, and they granted them an exception after the eighth grade. Uh, but 
it's still, the Supreme Court still granted states wide latitude to regulate private education. Uh, so the, the yeshiva controversy in New York, uh, like the Amish controversy, has much broader implications because there are still many open questions. How wide is the latitude of the state to regulate private education? Can states impose a substantial equivalency requirement on the private schools? And when the views of parents and religious communities clash with those of elected officials regarding education, who has the final say and under what circumstances? And if I recall correctly, the Supreme Court wrote the decision in the Yoder case you just mentioned about the Amish in quite a narrow way, emphasizing just how distinctive and unusual the Amish tradition was and how, uh, I guess, well entrenched they were in American society, how self-sufficient they are. And that issue of self-sufficiency is one that's come up in this controversy. People worry that if yeshiva students are not getting a secular education, that they are not going to be able to participate in the economy, that other taxpayers will ultimately be stuck with supporting them with subsidized housing and medical care. Jay, is that the concern that is animating uh, policymakers in New York who are seeking to, uh, I don't know, crack down is the right word, but seeking to uh, assure the quality of education available to students in these schools? Sure. I, actually, I don't think uh, much is motivating the policymakers in New York at all, other than that they're being compelled by litigation to begin to address an issue that, frankly, they'd rather avoid. Um, this is not a winning political issue for elected officials in New York, uh, no matter what they do, uh, and they'd rather avoid it. Um, and in part because of that, this issue has dragged out for many years. Um, it's clear legally, it appears clear legally, that the state is able to regulate the content of private education, even without funding it. And that is an important thing that people listening to this podcast should know, which is sometimes people say, uh, you know, government shekels bring government shackles, but you can have shackles without shekels. Um, the government can regulate without funding. Um, and, and that appears to be the case in New York, although there is some legal argument about it. Um, uh, instead, this is actually more broadly a political dispute and how it's resolved over the long run will not depend on legal arguments as much as on the prevailing political uh, consensus. And uh, I think that that's what this book is meant to inform is uh, how do we think, how should we be thinking about these issues? And, and the book contains a variety of perspectives uh, to help people think this through. Um, where are the limits of, of the family uh, in deciding what constitutes an education and how much say does the state have? Um, these issues are not settled. Uh, and once you have compulsory education laws, you're then forced to have a definition of what constitutes an education. And what we see in New York is a, is a fundamental clash over what is an education. The students in the yeshivas by, by almost all accounts are very successful academically. They're, uh, and in fact, when measured on, um, on state tests, uh, for those who take them, which raises questions about how representative it is, but, but that limited information suggests that they're actually faring quite well regardless of the uh, 
exact manner of delivery of education in their schools. And so uh, in addition to these broad questions about, about um, who should have final say, there's even the question of whether the state should be more focused on input or outcome regulation um, when it comes to these schools, because the, the outcomes appear to be okay uh, for the most part, um, uh, but the inputs are clearly very different. The number of minutes spent on each uh, secular subject in these schools is clearly much less than in the typical uh, neighboring public school, but the outcomes are much better. And if we were to worry about welfare dependency, uh, we might fret about the welfare dependency of many of the graduates, let alone the dropouts of the New York public school system. Um, so so I, th I think this is, a, is broader than a legal issue. This is a, a political issue and, and the book is meant to speak to those, those political questions. So even if we concede that on average, the outcomes for students in the yeshiva schools look pretty good, isn't the real issue about those more extreme cases that Jason mentioned at the outset, schools where very little in the way of secular education is occurring? The litigation that you mentioned, Jay, this, as I understand it, was instigated by an alumnus of one of these schools who felt that he had been denied a secular education that left him prepared for citizenship, for adulthood. And uh, how do we establish a regulatory regime or should we uh, even attempt to do so that addresses those extreme cases. Is that is that really what this is about? It's it's true that the case um, that was that had been brought and then eventually dismissed uh, was by an alumnus of one of these schools who it should be noted uh, went on to receive a master's degree uh, from a, a fairly prestigious university and state. Uh, so I mean that alone, the fact that a lot of these students actually uh, do go on to get college degrees and higher education degrees shows that yes, while they may uh, not be totally prepared initially from college, that the, uh, the education that they receive at the yeshivas uh, is actually transferable in some sense. There is obviously a clear uh, cost for switching, uh, for, for leaving the community and entering into the secular world. Uh, but it's not that these students are uneducated, they are very differently educated. And if you want to talk about minutes spent on education, they're spending a lot more time on education in this community than even at the public schools. Uh, they're going to school uh, earlier than the public school students and they're staying much, much later, usually around five o'clock. Uh, and then for uh, students that are in high school, they're often coming back after dinner and doing evening courses. Uh, and the type of education that they're doing, I mean, I've seen them called illiterate uh, in the uh, New York Times of all places. Uh, they're literate in several languages. They're literate in Hebrew, they're literate in Yiddish, they're literate in Aramaic. Uh, and they all speak English, just their English is uh, often a broken English. It's an English that you would, might, might hear from uh, English language learners in the United States. Uh, so they're literate in multiple languages and the, the type of education that they're doing actually uh, is very similar in some sense of the type of humanities education that you might see at Harvard or elsewhere. Uh, they are studying together in small groups and sometimes in one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, poring over these very complex texts, trying to understand what it means, um, doing very close reading, arguing with each other, coming up with different opinions, reading commentaries and commentaries on those commentaries. Uh, and so it definitely teaches a, a high degree of critical thinking that is a transferable skill. Uh, so the question then becomes, you know, if, if these students seem to be faring okay, even in the extreme schools that are spending almost no time on secular studies, 
but if they are graduating with some level of uh, you know, critical thinking skills that can be transferable in, in the market and can actually, uh, with some assistance, uh, uh, be used to obtain a college education, is there a strong argument for the state to step in when the, the, the state-run, or at least the, um, the uh, city-run schools, are, are not really uh, doing a great job, even at uh, $30,000 per pupil, of uh, providing a high-quality education? But, but there, I mean, I think also Marty's uh, point about um, extreme cases does raise the question of how much policymaking do we want to do around extreme cases? Um, uh, because uh, they may be very rare and then it opens the door to um, other communities that also have different visions of what constitutes an education. So there are homeschoolers, for example, who have very different visions or um, uh, a number of progressive uh, schools in New York um, have also joined into this legal action um, because they're concerned about their autonomy as well to offer a different kind of education than what is found in the typical uh, public school. And uh, so what level of diversity of, of vision of an, of an education ought the state to tolerate. Um, and this seems a little bit comparable to questions of, of abuse and neglect in families. I, th I think that that would be roughly a parallel is that uh, we, we generally have deference to families um, to raise their children, but we recognize the state has to intervene in certain extreme cases where the parenting constitutes abuse or neglect. Um, but um, the question is, how, how extreme does it really have to be in the, in the situation of education to be roughly the parallel of, of abuse or neglect? Um, not being able to know uh, references to popular culture, uh, you know, uh, or not being able to uh, discuss Harry Potter might not be uh, what constitutes abuse and neglect. There's also the question of what is the appropriate enforcement regime. So there's the issue of how extreme the abuse and neglect needs to be for the state to step in, but also, you know, should we be actively monitoring families to uh, see whether they're engaging in abuse and neglect, or should we rely on other detection systems in order to uh, allow us to intervene when appropriate? Uh, seems like there's a parallel question here. Should we be, be actively uh, inspecting private schools on a regular basis, as I understand the state education department's proposed regulatory scheme would have required, uh, or should we be relying on some different mechanism to generate reports? I think, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we don't inspect uh, every parent's home to see that the uh, pantry is adequately stocked um, and that uh, bedding is clean. Um, we, we don't do that. Um, we, we instead uh, have a type of uh, a fire department oversight instead of police department oversight, right? where we wait for someone to call in that there's a fire and then we go out and we, we, we try to put out the fire. Um, and uh, that has been the approach, frankly, in New York as a practical matter uh, when it comes to education. But the law says otherwise, right? I mean, and so the 
the question is, should that law be changed? Should it continue to kind of lay dormant? Uh, we have many laws that, that, that lay dormant and are not actively enforced, by the way, including lots of bad laws that we're glad probably are, are not enforced. Uh, maybe this is one of them that where things were fine. Uh, but in this case, some people pulled some fire alarms and then that, that forced the issue onto the agenda. Um, but the same could occur if you know, people graduated from Dalton and said, you know, uh, sitting in our struggle sessions all day prevented me from you know, learning calculus like I should have. Um, so. so the law you just mentioned, uh, the, the whole fight hinges on this language in New York's state education code requiring that non-public schools offer an education that is, quote, substantially equivalent, end quote, to that of the public schools. In an article on this controversy in Education Next last year, Menachem Wecker traced the origins of that language back to the same 1894 state constitutional convention in which New York adopted its Blaine Amendment. The Blaine Amendment aimed to prevent the state's then burgeoning Catholic school sector from receiving state financial aid. And by amending the state's education law, the legislators simultaneously increased the regulatory power of the state over private schools. I recall that Wecker makes a pretty good case that both of these moves reflected anti-Catholic animus. Is that your understanding as well? And how should that history hang over the present day controversy? Yeah, it, it certainly was animated by anti-Catholic animus. Uh, although interestingly, I mean, the idea was, let's make sure if these Catholic schools are going to continue to operate, you know, they would have loved to shut them down like they had done in Oregon. Uh, that did not seem to be an option. They're going to keep running. But A, let's make sure that they don't get any public funding with this Blaine Amendment. And B, let's make sure that they look as much like a public school as we possibly can. Uh, interestingly, at the time, that was actually the agenda of the Catholics as well. The Catholics wanted to be seen as good, loyal Americans. Um, you know, they were being accused of bringing over rum, Romanism, and rebellion. They wanted to uh, dispel these myths against them. And they said, no, no, you know, we're good Americans just like everyone else. See, look, our schools look just like your schools. We teach the same things. We, our schools are just Catholic. And the public schools in those days were actually non-denominational Protestant. Over time, though, the public schools were secularized. Uh, private schools began to, new private schools began to form. The, the private market began to shift. They started to look a lot different than the public schools. And the substantial equivalency law essentially remained dormant uh, because it didn't have to be enforced really against the Catholics. And then... Um, nobody really tried to enforce it against the Protestant schools and eventually the progressive schools uh, until now. And so what, what uh, this means, uh, substantial equivalency, is not even entirely clear. Is it that they have to teach the same content or just the same subjects? And uh, does that mean they have to spend a certain amount of time? Does that time have to be comparable to the amount of time spent at public schools? Uh, is it that they have to take the same tests and pass at a certain level? These questions are entirely unclear. And so the State Department of Education is trying to wade through. Uh, there is no authority right now to impose tests or certainly not any tests with teeth. So they're relying essentially on seat time requirements, but the schools have been pushing back saying, look, if you require us to spend this amount of time on the dozen subjects that you've identified as being necessary, 
necessary for a substantially equivalent education, you've essentially taken our entire school day away from us. And uh, you know, even though uh, Professor Sager from Fordham University, who uh, wrote a chapter in a book on this, argues that Yes, I mean, if you follow uh, Peers Free Society of Sisters in Yoder, uh, it seems that the, the government does have a compelling interest in ensuring that every child has some certain minimal level of education that policymakers can define. It's not clear that they can actually take uh, all or even most of the day. And so where that line is drawn is still something to be adjudicated by the courts. In another chapter uh, that I really liked from the book by Rita Kogenson at, at the University of Virginia, um, she, she pointed out that uh, there are um, uh, divergent paths here that people cannot easily flip between. So uh, one cannot um, spend your life um, uh, in, in, with predominant emphasis on a secular education and then become a great uh, a scholar of the Talmud, um, that, that that type of life and that type of education requires considerable investment from a young age. Um, and that system of education, frankly, predates um, the public schooling system. Um, and so it's unclear, though, that that system of education has served the families that participate in it badly over very long periods of time. Um, and that actually there's much about our secular education that we might find lacking. Um, we do worry about uh, the aimlessness of our young people and uh, some of the issues that this religious education is meant to address um, seems um, uh, to be lacking in the traditional system. And so it's, it's unclear uh, if maybe the traditional public system has something to learn from this, this religious system. So I think you've succeeded in convincing listeners that this episode, this debate is worthy of deep exploration. As you look back, having done so, I wonder if each of you could identify the one lesson that you take away from having put this book together. What was the most important thing you learned from looking deeply at this situation in New York City? I don't know that I have a specific lesson, but I, I will say in one area that it, it changed my mind. Uh, going into it, uh, I actually come from sort of both worlds. Uh, so I grew up in a very secular household, went to a Catholic high school, and uh, after college went to yeshiva and became more observant. Uh, so before I was in your class, Marty, uh, I spent uh, several years uh, studying in yeshiva and in this type of environment basically trying to catch up, moving in the opposite direction of some of the uh, students that had come, you know, filed the complaints against these yeshivas. I was actually much more in favor uh, beforehand of the yeshivas um, moving in a direction where they have a more robust secular curriculum. Uh, I was leery of the government forcing their hand, but certainly on the side of those uh, reformers within the community that were trying to I, you know, reform the yeshivas. And I still have a great amount of respect and, and sympathy for that view. Uh, I'm actually less, after studying the issue more, uh, less inclined to try to reform these yeshivas. I, I think that, uh, that what they are providing, although it's certainly not everybody's cup of tea, is something that is very valuable. And ultimately, at the end of the day, that these students 
uh, by and large, for the most part in the community, they're okay. They grow up, they get jobs, they have families, and, and they do all right. And they live in a community that, uh, that they love and in which, you know, lots of people are happy. Every community has problems. They certainly have problems in their community as well. Uh, but I would say on average, they seem to be doing better than uh, many other communities in this country right now. Uh, and so it, it sort of humbled me about my, my own views of what the best education is and when we should be trying to uh, change others' minds, especially through force uh, when it comes to the education of their own children. Jay, how about you? So uh, I, I thought before going into this project that um, the law would uh, be on the side of the yeshivas and that this would be a clear First Amendment uh, free exercise issue um, and that it was just a matter of trying to figure out how to, how to make that argument clear. And uh, it's pretty clear to me that that's not the case. Um, and I, I should have remembered what I was taught uh, uh, by uh, our mentor, uh, Paul Peterson, many years ago that, you know, most legal issues actually uh, devolve into being political issues. And that over the long run, if you want to exercise influence and make change, that you have to change the politics and the law will follow. Um, and I think that's the case here too. So for, for any of the listeners who care about this issue one way or another, um, your involvement really should be a political involvement more than a legal involvement, because I think in the end that that's what's going to decide the matter. My guests today have been Jason Bedrick and Jay Green, co-editors of Religious Liberty and Education, a case study of Yeshivas v. New York. Jason, Jay, congratulations on the book and thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.